That looks pretty good. I didn't make that. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, Ivan Rest Church. How are you all doing today? I must have done okay the first time because you've invited me back. So that's always a good thing, right? Would you join me uh, in opening your Bibles this morning at John chapter 1, verse 19 to 34? going to read this familiar story of John the Baptist. But before we do that, I might pray for us. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving Lord, we come once again to your word to receive, to be moved, to be challenged, to be called to greater obedience, to see something that might inspire our faith and draw us closer to yourself. Lord, we trust that your Spirit is among us and within us. And as we open your word together this morning, speak to us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Beginning at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him, uh, had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do, who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So some of you know that I am from Ireland, and they don't teach you this accent at Calvin Seminary, that's for sure. And I'm very proud of my Irish heritage. It astounds me that for such a little country, we've had quite the contribution to the world. There's the great writers like Joyce and Yeats and C.S. Lewis, who the English like to claim that they own him, but actually he's Irish. There's the film stars like Liam Neeson, and Saoirse Ronan, 
It's a good Irish name. Try to say that one together, Searsha. Uh, there's St. Patrick's Day, where they turn the Chicago River green, which seems even excessive to us. Um, and there's the, the black beverage, Guinness, but we won't celebrate that too loudly in here. And then there's the music. And one band in particular, a band called U2. Perhaps you've heard of them. And judging by a few faces, I think you might have. But just last year, U2 went on tour to celebrate the release of their most acclaimed album from over 30 years ago, an album called Joshua Tree, one of the fastest-selling, highest-grossing albums of all time. The contents of this album seem to resonate with the generation, so much so that those songs are still selling out stadiums today. And one of the hit songs from that album is a song called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. You know that song? I have climbed the highest mountain. I have roamed through the fields only to be with you. And I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls, only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Words about looking for connection, purpose, meaning, wholeness in all the available places, but coming up short. Words about looking for answers to life's big questions, but coming up empty. In our text for this morning, Everybody comes to John the Baptist looking for answers, but they don't quite find what they're looking for. And we know John the Baptist, don't we? The locust-eaten, camel-hair-wearing, vagabond-like character who's out by the Jordan River, and he's causing quite the stir. John the Baptist is calling his fellow Jews to a baptism of repentance in preparation for a new move of God. According to John, God's kingdom has come near, so you best get ready, Israel. You best get prepared. And the Jews are listening. The people are going out in their droves to wash their skin as a symbol of the inner cleanliness they so desire. The people are buying what the Baptist is selling, and there's reason for that. There's a reason why this Jewish community is given this desert nomad the time of day. And it's because the people are lost, and they're looking for a Savior. The people are turning to anything and anyone that might help to raise them from their vulnerable situation. It's been 400 years since the Israelites heard a prophet speak the words of their God. It's been nearly 70 years that they've been under the fist of the Roman Empire with that despot Herod as king. Their religious customs and practices have become so legalized and elitist that most of them can't even get their foot in the temple door. Their political, social, and religious situation is suffocating, and they're longing for deliverance, for restoration. And all these factors surrounding Israel's circumstances has created a corporate sense, a corporate understanding that something has got to give soon. 
God is going to do something among us. And as they interpret their circumstances in light of their scriptures, they've come to believe that the Messiah is en route. The one whom the Old Testament spoke about, who would bring restoration, deliverance, and wholeness to God's people. The Messiah is due to arrive. And so this community is on the lookout for hints of messianic fulfillment. And John the Baptist, well, he fits a messianic brief. He dresses and eats and lives in the wilderness like Elijah. He preaches a message of repentance and judgment like the prophets of old. He practices purification rituals and teaches outside of the mainstream religious institution. And so there's curiosity among the people. Is John the Baptist the one we are looking for? Is John the Baptist our Messiah, our Christ? Shall we pin our hopes on him? Is he the one we're looking for? This Jewish community in a desperate situation are responding to John because he might just be the one they are looking for. But the Jewish leaders, they're not so quick to join the, join the hype. The Jewish leaders want answers. They want to know if this John guy is a restorer to be taken seriously or a rebel to be contained. And so they send a delegation to interrogate him. Who are you? They ask. And John, aware of the messianic hype that surrounds him, gets right to the point. I am not the Messiah. What then, John? Are you Elijah? Referencing the promise of Malachi 4 that Elijah will return in preparation for the end times. Are you Elijah, John? I am not. How about the prophet, John? Are you the one that, that Moses told us about in Deuteronomy 18? Are you the prophet? No, John responds emphatically. And we get the sense that as the questions close in on John, so does the crowd who have gathered by the hype to hear his responses. And John pipes up when he resolves the matter. Look, I'm not your Messiah. I'm not your Elijah. I'm not your prophet. In fact, I'm not even worthy enough to bend down and untie the strap of the sandal of the one who is. What I am is a voice proclaiming the promise of a Messiah, but I am not the one you're looking for. And boom, just like that, the hype bubble bursts. This community are looking for a Messiah who will restore their relationship to their God who's been quiet for years. This community is looking for a Messiah who will raise them from their political situation and restore their prosperous independence. They're looking for somebody to pin their hopes on. But in John the Baptist's humble denial, they come to realize that he's not their Messiah. He's not the one they're looking for. They trekked out to the banks of the Jordan to find Messiah, but instead they found the messenger. They still haven't found what they're looking for. Can you imagine the disappointment? Ever place your hope in somebody, in something you thought would be a source of promise or satisfaction to your needs, but experienced instead, instead bitter disappointment? It was too good to be true. 
a while back, a teddy bear company, perhaps you heard of this, called Build-A-Bear, released an unmissable promotional offer. According to this offer, you simply had to pay your age in order to acquire one of their sought-after bears. Exciting news for, for parents with young children who could buy these Build-A-Bears. However, the Build-A-Bear marketing folks did not do their homework, because on the day that the promotional offer was supposed to take place, the stores and the malls were overrun with families looking for their pay-your-age Build-A-Bear bear. And there was no way that the stores were, or, or the company would be able to sustain their, their original promotional offer without serious losses. And so on the morning of the deal, they pulled the original offer. And instead, they gave out gift vouchers to disappointed families who had waited hours in line to get their Build-A-Bear bear. They came looking for the real deal, but they got a bum deal instead. It was not the deal they came looking for. And life is like this sometimes, isn't it? We place our hope in what we think is the real deal that will meet our needs, but in the end, the real deal turns out to be a disappointing dud. And a bear is one thing. But what about the big things? What about the big things that really matter? What about that relationship we thought would be our greatest source of happiness, but turned out instead to be our greatest source of pain? What about that job we thought would give us a sense of value, a sense of worth, a sense of purpose, but we've been in it now for 10 years and we absolutely dread Monday morning? What about that financial goal? We thought that once we reach, we'd feel safe, we'll feel secure, yet not making ends meet is still our greatest fear. What about that community you thought was worth giving your trust and your commitment to, but it turned out instead to be a place of deceit and hurt? Two weeks ago, the New York Times had a picture of the Willow Creek congregation as they received the news that their senior pastor and the elder, whole elder board was stepping down because of the mishandling of sexual allegations against Bill Hybels. In the picture, there were faces buried in hands, mouths opened in astonishment, eyes wincing with tears. It was a still-framed caption of being let down, of disappointment. We sometimes, like those Israelites who came to John, we flock to people and to places and to things we hope will meet our deepest needs. We pin our hopes, our promise, in places that at first glance seem to be the real deal, but instead turn out to be places of disappointment. Sometimes in our difficulties, in our longings, in our need for wholeness, we look to people and things around us to do for us what only Messiah can. What only Messiah can. And the truth, the truth this morning is that our greatest need is to be delivered from the bondage of sin. And no matter how deep John the Baptist pushed the Israelites into the Jordan River, he could never deliver them from such bondage. 
No matter how much they, they washed their external skin, they could not cleanse the internal stain. And we can look to people and to places and to things to tend to the needs that stem from that same sinful bondage, but we will never find what we're looking for. The text says that the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Jesus is coming toward him. How beautifully ironic. While the Israelites are scouring the desert and the banks of the Jordan and the depths of their scriptures looking for hints and whispers of Messiah, here he is in flesh and blood coming toward them, looking for them. As the lost Israelites wearily look for a savior, here Jesus, their savior, comes looking for them, coming toward them. And we imagine John raising his head to see the Lord approaching. And then we hear him raise his voice loud enough for his words to carry down the banks of the Jordan, across the desert plains, into the villages and the towns where the lost reside. We hear him scream, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, O Israel, hear, O people, the one you have been waiting for, that Messiah, that Elijah, that prophet. Look at him. There he is. The Messiah you are looking for comes toward us, has found us. And in one sentence that shows up only here in the whole of Scripture, in one sentence, John summarizes the messianic mandate. In one sentence, he gets to the heart of not just Israel's greatest need, but the world's greatest need, and how Jesus, the Messiah, will meet it. Look, says John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus will meet our greatest need by taking away our sin. And notice in the text how the term sin is singular. So often when we think of sin, we think of sins. Jesus doesn't come to simply to just take away the little sins we commit, like driving over the speed limit on your way to church or lying about your age. Jesus comes to take away sin, the contagion that has infected every facet of the cosmos, the sin that causes us to put our hope and our longings and our love in other things, sin that John the gospel writer describes as a darkness that has wrapped the cosmos in a constant state of night, sin. But here comes Jesus. Here comes the Lamb who will lay himself down in sacrifice to atone for and take away sin. Here comes Jesus, who pierces the dark night of sin with the glorious light of Easter morning. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's proclamation about who Jesus is is affirmed in a divine display by the divine community. The Spirit of God descends and remains on Jesus. 
the same spirit that Jesus later sends to flood the hearts of all he came to save, washing away sin and marking them as children of God, never to be lost again, estranged from their heavenly Father, but cleansed, renewed, revived, and restored by the power of the Spirit that, as John 14 tells us, remains in them. The Israelites' search is over. The Messiah they are going out looking for comes to them, seeks them, saves them. And this morning, today, Jesus comes toward us. If you are lost in the constant disappointment of life, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are lost in trying to satisfy the deeper longings and keep coming up short, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are tired and worn out from the futile search for wholeness in people, places, and things, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes toward us to meet the need that we so often look elsewhere to satisfy. Jesus comes toward us to take away our sin and to give us new life in the Spirit, a sure hope that will not spoil, that will not fail, that will not resign, that will not be a bum deal, that will not let you down. We're no longer lost to scour the desert in search of promise, to climb the highest mountains in search of hope, to scale the city walls in search of wholeness and not find what we're looking for. Because the good news, friends, is Jesus is not hidden. Lift your head and look, for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes to you. It was a cold and wintry night a few years ago, and Mel Trotter Homeless Shelter was busting at the seams. It was blizzard conditions outside. And the security guards got word that there was a man sleeping in a doorway a few blocks away. It was getting late in the evening. And so these security guards were worried for this man's life, and so one of them put on their boots and their coat and their hat, and they stepped out into this blizzard to find this man. And they went down one street and checked every doorway to no avail. And then they went down another street to no luck. And then just when he was about to give up, he saw a figure lying against the doorway half covered in snow. And as he came to him, he could see that he was intoxicated. He was unconscious. His, his clothing spoiled, soiled. And the security guard bent down and he threw one hand through his legs and he lifted him onto his back, and he carried him slowly down to the homeless shelter, down the icy hill. And isn't this picture of compassion what Jesus does for us? Jesus steps into our dark, cold night. He searches for us. He finds us in our desperation. He lifts us and our burden upon his very own back and he carries us every step of the way toward deliverance. 
still haven't found what you're looking for? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes toward you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as those with a tendency to wander, as those with a tendency to leave the comforts of your love and your truth for other things, Lord, help us stay. Give us eyes to see you. Give us ears to hear you. Give us lives to respond to you. Father, may the central truth of the gospel that Jesus came to this world to take away our sin and to give us new life in the Spirit. May that truth be the grounding hope in which we build our life upon. Help us, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.